You're listening to the Boss Business of Surgery series, episode 61. Today, I talk with Dr. Abay Singh. This is a very important story. It's a long episode, but it's compelling. It's important. I hope you share it with residents and program directors so we can all understand what the cost of delaying childbearing can be. And for those people who, for no obvious reason, have problems with childbearing. I hope you enjoy this episode. It's a very important story. Welcome, surgeons. Residency didn't teach us everything we needed to learn to be a successful surgeon. While we spent our time caring for patients and learning how to operate, we didn't learn how to advocate for ourselves or navigate our career. I'm your host, Dr. Amy Vertries. I'm a general surgeon, certified coach, and founder of the Boss Business of Surgery series. This is where you'll learn those lessons not taught in residency. All right, welcome back. You know, I reconnected with an old friend. This is Dr. Abay Singh. He is a urologist. We met um, in the military a long time ago. And, you know, I saw him post something about his infertility journey. And he you know, said that he had an important story to share and for people to reach out to him. And so I did because I really do think that, you know, especially as surgeons, we do delay a lot of our, you know, fertility for training. And, you know, I know that we uh, talked to Dr. Carolina uh, Sweldo before on the female perspective. And so I wanted to bring um, Dr. Singh on to talk about his story and his perspective, because I really do think this is an important thing for us to consider. And, you know, for those of you going through that journey, all the things that, that we could do to help you out, understand, you know, what you can do along the way. So, but first, let's back up. Um, so, Dr. Debay Singh, tell me a little bit about yourself. Uh, so first of all, thanks so much for having me, Amy. I really appreciate being on this, um, uh, having this conversation. So, uh, yeah, I was, um, I grew up in New Jersey. I, I uh, when I went to college, I decided to do ROTC. And so I joined the military, the army uh, in that way through college. I got an educational deferment to go to medical school. And in medical school, I think I knew pretty early on I wanted to do surgery, but um uh, solidified that as my medical school time went on and, and decided to do urology. And uh, because I was in the military, um, uh, I applied to the military match. And the way my residency work was a little bit unique, I did my first year at Walter Reed, my intern year, my general surgery intern year at Walter Reed, which was where I met you, where you were a chief. And that was a, you know, intern year is obviously an amazing year and a horrible year, but it, overall it's a great experience, <laughs> right? And um, and you were actually one of the positives in it. Um, and then I did my urology training down at Duke because Duke uh, takes one army resident per year for urology, which is a wonderful relationship Duke has with the military. And, and so I was um, the resident that year. And so after my intern year at Walter Reed, I went down to uh, North Carolina where I did my residency. I also got to Duke undergrad. So it was a lot of time in Durham overall. And, and then um, after residency, I went to Fort Benning, Georgia, which was my first um, duty assignment, and then I PCS to Fort Belvoir in Virginia. So serving as a general urologist, general urologist of both the locations. And then after we got out of the military, my wife and I came back to the Northeast, which is where we're from. I'm from New Jersey and she's from Pennsylvania. And so we are now settled in her hometown, which is Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Um, and and, I know um, that you guys uh, met while you were in the military. And so she's a physician as well. So take us through a little bit um, on that uh, you know, path. Sure, sure. Yeah, we so we actually, you know, truly met back in college. We both went to Duke together, but we didn't start dating till years later when I was in medical school and she was applying to medical school. And so uh, when I was an intern at Walter Reed, we started a long distance relationship where I was uh, obviously in the D.C. area and she was at University of Miami for medical school. And so we were long distance all the way until she matched to internal medicine at Duke, which was when I was a uh 
third year resident. And so we spent um, a few years together at, um, sorry, no, I was a fourth year resident. So we spent two years together. And then I, because of a six year residency, I went, I got out and I was, I went to Georgia. And then she spent her last year of residency uh, at Duke, obviously, and then came to join me in Georgia. And she was, she was a hospitalist because she wanted to do a fellowship, but there's no fellowship opportunities around that location. And that's a longer story because we kind of had a, another plan set up with the military where she could do a fellowship, but then my location changed and this is life and that's the military for sure. And so, uh, but we made it work, which is a lesson in life and this conversation we're going to have in general about um, taking journeys and just accepting what comes. But she was a hospitalist. And then um, one of the main reasons I PCS to Virginia was because that gave her the opportunity to do a hematology oncology fellowship, which has been her goal since residency. And so while we were, while I was at Fort Belvoir, she was doing her um, fellowship at Georgetown. And then when she finished, um, uh, I finished and we came back to Northeast. So uh, that timing worked out. Combining a two physician family and the military and, you know, the desire for fellowship, you know, it's no surprise that your childcare or your childbearing, you know, journey was delayed. So yes. take us through like when you guys decided that you were going to have children, how did that start going? Sure, sure. So we, you know, we, we've been together since medical school for me and, um, and, and, you know, uh, she's about my age, just a year younger. And so we knew we wanted children. And our general thought process is we are healthy and we, and you know, what makes sense for our, our residency and our careers and, and trying to, and, and trying to start a family. And it made sense to us. We should do this when we're together at the same place. We've been long distance for a long time. And so it didn't make sense to do it while I was in uh, DC and in North Carolina while she was still in Miami. And then when she got to North Carolina, which was fantastic when she matched to Duke, that was a wonderful day because we were scared we'd be long distance further if she didn't match to Duke. Uh, then we knew we had two years together, but we knew that that third year I would be gone. You know, we that would not overlap and I would not be staying in North Carolina, almost certainly. Um, and so the question is, well, do we start a family now when she's an intern and, you know, and I'm going to be gone? Uh, and the short answer is we thought, no, that doesn't make sense. We'll just wait until we're together. And, you know, we thought, OK, we'll be in our early 30s and that's reasonable. And, you know, um, and so we started trying as soon as she got to Georgia, essentially. And um and and that made sense, you know, to us leading up to us at the time. Now, if you ask me, what would you do in retrospect? I, I think we would have had a serious thought about that, a serious conversation about that. And, you know, I, I listened to a podcast with uh, Dr. Sweldo and I thought it was, first of all, a wonderful podcast. I thought she was excellent. I thought your conversation was excellent. And I really wish I and my wife had heard that conversation um, years ago. You know, I, I, the thought I had going through my head when when I heard your podcast was, this is that extra course we need in medical school that just covers all these uh, things that we need to know, but don't get covered in any formal setting, right? And it's it's not just fertility, obviously, it's financial planning. It's, you know, running a practice. It's academic medicine versus private practice or hospital-based. It's all these things that matter a whole lot to us, but never really get brought up formally. And um, and something I think every medical student, or not made me every, but a lot of medical students would, would benefit from. So we started as soon as, you know, when she got to Georgia, um, we started trying and, and we actually got pregnant fairly quickly, um, uh, which was wonderful. And the issue was it turned out to be a molar pregnancy. And, um, you know, for people listening to this podcast and wondering what a molar pregnancy was, I definitely did not know what a molar, I could, you know, I could barely remember. I'm like, oh, I remember that lecture in medical school 
And I remember never seeing it on OB-GYN because it's not common. It's like one in a thousand pregnancies and there's a full mole and there's a partial mole. And, you know, without going into all the details, the long story short is she had a, a, a full molar pregnancy and that required an aggressive DNC because there's a risk for this turning into malignancy. And so we had to have a, you know, that procedure. And that was obviously, you know, heartbreaking in its own way. But honestly, at that point, we weren't, we were upset, but not, um, but not, you know, by no means broken or, or really let down. Like, okay, this is a roadblock. Things happen. You know, the, I think the biggest downside is we were not supposed to try again for six months because for six months, they, they really want to monitor the HCG very closely. You do not want to go above zero. So actually six months, we're going to taper us to zero. So one, if I forget, maybe being seven or eight months from, from, you know, when we first got pregnant that we could try again. And so that was obviously frustrating. And, and, but we, in all, in our true hearts believed, okay, this is, you know, we got pregnant quickly. We're going to get pregnant again. Maybe it won't be as quick, but it's, you know, it's going to work out. This was with all of our friends who were um, OB-GYNs kind of suggested was going to be the case. And so we tried again when we were allowed to, you know, allowed being, you know, we wanted to follow, we want to be compliant and, 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 and take the advice of the physicians treating us. And we tried again when we were allowed to, and we got pregnant pretty quickly again, maybe it was a month or two months or three months, but not, not a long time. And unfortunately that wound up ending in a miscarriage. And, um, and so, you know, now we were, you know, now it's um, disappointment and some, some bitterness, to be honest, is starting to set in a little bit. But, um, but still, you know, we were following the, uh, we were following the guidance and, and believed in what we were told, which is, Hey, these things happen. Miscarriages are common. You know, this keep trying the overwhelming odds are that you will be able to get pregnant on your own. And so we tried again and then we had a chemical pregnancy. And um, at this point we were like, okay, maybe we should be looking into what else is going on. And so we had a saline sonogram and I forget honestly what else the initial workup was, but everything looked normal. And so we're like, okay, you know, we keep trying, we should keep trying. And, and the timeline is a little bit hazy in my head and that's on purpose. The timeline is hazy in my head because it is a little bit painful to think back and try to remember all these kind of disappointments and setbacks. And so, you know, more than I can tell you exactly how many um, miscarriages and what I'll tell you in a, in, a, in a minute about failed embryo transfers and all these different parts that are part of the fertility journey that didn't go um, uh, you know, as we hoped, I can tell you where I was when they happened. You know, I remember like where I was walking the dog when I got the, when we got the phone call saying, Hey, you know, this didn't work out or where I, where we were driving to and pulled over the side of the road when we were getting a phone call about, um, you know, what the lab result was or all these different, you know, key points and more than the key points, I can remember where we were and how we felt. Um, and so on purpose, I've kind of forgotten intentionally a little bit of our timeline because I don't want to remember it. It's, 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 it's not, it, to me, at least it wasn't productive to remember it. it um, at this point, roughly, we'd had, you know, three um, pregnancies that did, you know, that, that did not work out. And I, we, and we started the workup for fertility. And at this point, we, I, we PCS, I PCS from um, Georgia to Fort Belvoir, Virginia. And my wife started fellowship at Georgetown at the same time. And one of the advantages of being there uh, was we now had access to a IVF clinic, an REI uh, team, because Walter Reed has a um, has a IVF clinic, which is and, and they're great. Uh, Fort Benning, Georgia, is too small to have a clinic, and I don't even think there was a, and I could be wrong, but I don't even think there was a local REI doctor in town. Not that we thought it was necessary to go to them yet, but uh, when we got to the DC area, we're like, okay, we should, you know, it's now been two years of trying, right, um, uh, and or. Two years, at least almost two years, 
and we are, you know, um, kind of square one or maybe a little bit behind because things don't seem to be working out when we do try now. So let's be more aggressive about working things up. So we got in with Walter Reed's clinic and they did the workup. And the long story short is that there was not a clear reason for why we were not, uh, why these things are ending in miscarriage. And they did another saline sonogram and that looked normal again. I did a semen analysis. You know, my wife did a bunch of hormonal lab testing and some other testing. They thought maybe one, there was a possible thrombotic dis- you know, issue where she had like a, I think an anti-cardiolipin that was slightly positive on a titer. And so in the future, we would do Lovenox shots when we were trying to do um, uh, a cycle uh, for a transfer, embryo transfer. But we moved forward with creating embryos. Um, and so, and the thought there was, we're not sure what's going on. Let's create embryos. Maybe it's a little bit more controlled. Um, and if nothing else, you know, these embryos stay good, right? You know, embryos are always... Um, not always. Embryos are very stable. And, you know, this goes back to your conversation with Dr. Sweldo, where you guys talked about that. And for people who are not listening, embryos are very stable when they're frozen. They can be thawed and the success rate is usually excellent to thaw an embryo. For a long time, eggs were not thought to be as stable, but now they've made a lot of advancements to that. Something else I thought we, I wish we'd known, because I always in my mind was like, oh, eggs are not, you know, they don't, they don't freeze as well. And I think we'd known they do. Maybe my wife would have frozen eggs way back in medical school or something, just cause, you know, cause just cause you don't know. But anyway, getting back to our timeline, we were working with the IVF clinic and we created embryos and we're like, okay, let's do an embryo transfer. So that's obviously where we've created these embryos and that's a whole conversation of itself. And we can talk about that. Uh, and it might be, we're talking about it just for a minute, but an embryo transfer is where you take one of these embryos, you thaw it and you transplant it into um, uh, the uterus and and um, we did that and it, um, it did not take, meaning, you know, we, you, you do the transfer and then a couple of weeks later you do a pregnancy test and, um, and, and it, it was, you know, it did not, unfortunately the pregnancy did not take. And so um, that was really heartbreaking. I think that was one of our lowest points. And when I say lowest points, you know, that's a combination of feeling depressed and angry and bitter and, um, uh, and the feeling that no one else can really understand you. And I think, you know, I, and I'm, the reason I'm saying what all these emotions is because when you feel those emotions, you feel justified in feeling them, but you also don't feel justified in feeling them. And the reason I say that is because, you know, I'm a surgeon. My wife's a, at this point, a, you know, in fellowship for oncology where she is seeing young or old patients who have tragic diagnoses, which are clearly, clearly unfair. And we, you know, anyone in medicine are seeing tragic diagnoses, which are not unfair. And so on one hand, I feel we felt totally justified for kind of, you know, raging against the world and why is this happening to us? And, you know, this is not right. And, you know, everyone around us is getting pregnant and, you know, um, but, you know, and we're, we did everything quote unquote, right. You know, we're healthy. We don't smoke. We, you know, we don't have, you know, we don't do things that would put you at risk. And, but at the same time, things are not working out. But on the other hand, on an everyday basis or a very frequent basis, we're seeing patients who are doing, who have much, I don't want to compare, but like, you know, they, they're dealing with things that are, you could, I think most people would say are, are much more tragic than what we're dealing with, right? We're not at the end of our road. We're just at a really sad low point or a frustrating point. And we see patients that are dealing with much more and often don't have hope or um, have to go through a lot more, whether that be chemotherapy or surgery or all these things. So, uh, it was, it, you know, those emotions were difficult then and they were difficult throughout, but it was, um, on one hand, again, you, I, we were, 
upset and sad and bitter. On the other hand, we felt guilt, or at least I felt guilt, and I think my wife did too, about having those emotions, knowing that, let's put this in perspective, right? What we see in our jobs every day, you know, we this is, you know, we don't have a life-threatening illness. You know, it, it, in, in some ways, it kind of feels like a chronic disease is maybe a more apt way to put it, because it's something you deal with on an everyday basis. It's the first thing you think about when you wake up. It's the last thing you think about when you go to sleep, because you really want this to work out. And you're always thinking, all right, what's the next step? Okay, this didn't work out. When can we get back in for our next cycle for embryo transfer? When can we do our next set of labs? You know, how do we make this work? You know, what what, what appointments can my wife make? Because she's a fellow, right? Fellowship is not conducive necessarily to making all these appointments at an IVF clinic because there's a lot of monitoring when you go through these these um, these cycles, and there's a lot of medications as well to be taken, and um, and there's you know those medications are they're not the easiest regimen again. In perspective compared to other medications people are taking probably you know um not horrible but certainly not easy it's not like popping a you know a pill it, it's it's shots and there's timing and there's um um hormonal effects from those shots whether those be uh mood uh, changes or um you know other uh, hormonal effects so it, it's it's not super easy to tolerate and and when i say this i mean for my wife i mean you know i um, as, as the male in this, you know, saw my wife going through this and I, this was, um, it was not easy for me. And I probably did not appreciate the extent and still don't appreciate the extent of what, what it was for her to go through this, especially when you're a fellow and you have these competing, um, stresses in your life of, you know, you want to do well in fellowship and, and, but you also want to start this family, which has always been a goal. Um, and, um, I know I'm kind of going on tangents here, but but one tangent I do want to go on right now is is I think the my role as um, you know her husband was to listen and to be sympathetic and to um, and to understand that I don't understand and I can't say I did that well you know I think I did okay at times but I think at other times I did not you know I think at other times I would you know I uh, could have been much more I could have been a much better listener. Yeah, that's the perfect, uh, you know, statement is that just to understand that I don't understand. And I mean, I have all these questions, but you're basically answering them. So I haven't interrupted. No, please, yeah, please interrupt me. I'm, I'm, yeah, this is, I'm giving like a monologue and that's not what I want this to be. And no, I'm not what you just want either. So actually, because, you know, really what it is, and this is why it's so genuine, like, you know, going through your story, because a lot of us think, you know, it's the, the woman that's going through the difficulty. But there's absolutely no doubt in my mind after talking to you before that, you know, you went through just as much and certainly at least different turmoil, um, you know, throughout this whole situation. And so that's why I think that your story is especially compelling uh, of just, you know, what the, um, you know, the husband is going through, you know, that the, all of the struggles that you had and the guilt and all the emotions and, you know, especially with us as physicians, because, you know, I know that you see a lot of tr uh, tragedy with patients as we all do. And it's hard to, like you said, really reconcile our feelings um, that we have. And so then take us through a little bit of, you know, what your next step was like. So I know that you had the, the frozen embryos and all. So we're, let's pick up um, in there. Sure. What happened next. Sure. Yeah. So we, you know, we did, we had frozen embryos. We did a transfer. It did not take, um, uh, at this point, we decided let's do another transfer. So the, the success rate of transfers, if I remember the numbers correctly, are, it is, 90% within three tries. So meaning if, if you have three embryo transfers, 90% of couples will get pregnant. And I, I, 
I think it's a successful delivery, not just pregnant. So yeah, it's a successful, you know, you'll have a, you'll have a child within three tries. And I think it's 60% per cycle. So we're like, okay, the first time it didn't work, 60%, you know, 40% odds that it would not. Let's try another embryo transfer. And we did another one and that one, we became pregnant. And, and then we lost it, you know, it was, it, it, it miscarried. Uh, um, and, and now, you know, the same feelings as before bitterness and, and disappointment and, and anger and, and some, you know, honestly, sadness and, and, and some level of depression, uh, but just even more so than the first, because we had it, we were there, we were so excited. And then, and then, and then, and then it was not, and I think that was one of the other, um, uh, most compelling, um, feelings uh, from this journey was what hurt the most, I think, was this, these feelings of true joy, you know, hope and excitement right before you do a transfer. Uh, and then that crushing feeling when it doesn't work out. And, um, and you know, on one hand, I don't, I, I, I think we should be, should be excited. You know, when we're going for an embryo transfer, I think it's, it's right to be excited. I, I don't think it would have been a good idea if we were going in bitter, right? Oh, it's not going to work out, you know? So, uh, and I think that's another role I had as the husband, you know, I think it was my job primarily, you know, to, to, to be the, the cheerleader for us, like to, to remind, to, to remind us like, Hey, these are roadblocks is we're not at the end of the road and we have a reason to be hopeful. And, um, and, and, um, uh, so we did that transfer, unfortunately did not, you know, it, it ended the miscarriage. And at this point, you know, not that it, it really mattered, but this was just our journey. We transferred our care from Walter Reed to Shady Grove. Shady Grove is a big, um, IVF, um, powerhouse in the DC area. So it, is a, it was in our backyard. And the reason we did this was primarily because uh, Walter Reed was great, but we just, you know, our appointments, it was just, it just takes a while to get in for next appointment. And, you know, you can't really argue with that because the care is covered by TRICARE. Um, and, and when, and every experience we had there was good, meaning, you know, we, it's not like we didn't trust the doctors or the nurses, you know, the communication was great. We thought we felt very comfortable in their hands. It just, you know, you are anxious, right? And I think any, for any couple going through fertility is anxious. They want to things move, things move forward quickly or as quickly as they can. And at Shady Grove, it was much easier to do that than it was at, at Walter Reed. And so we transferred care to Walter Reed. And I forget the exact timeline, but at some point we created more embryos. And we also did another transfer. Now I'll say, you know, the embryo creation process in and of itself is really stressful because you take these, you know, you get these, you, you take these medications, you're getting these ultrasounds to see how many um, uh uh, eggs are, 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 are likely going to be able to be harvested and you're looking, you're hoping for good numbers. And, you know, so it's like crossing your fingers and toes for how many eggs you're going to get. And then they, you know, then, then they, you harvest them and you learn how many it was, and it's never what you're hoping. And, um, but then they put them, you know, in, they put them together with the sperm and then you re the, what really matters is, well, how many of these embryos actually survive to become, you know, to the point where they can become frozen, right? They wait a few days and you're getting you're getting these updates and you're just waiting for these updates um uh you know you're waiting by the phone for like okay how many how many do we have and i forget you know we did this three times so and so i forget the numbers for each one but one of them i remember it was not good you know it was we you know it's like oh my goodness we had all we went through all this for that you know and i think we had one embryo um at the end of it and and, you know, again, perspective, right? We know a lot of people don't get any embryos through these, you know, that's not uncommon for, uh, for a, a couple, unfortunately, not to get 
to not get any or to only get one. And certainly some, you know, a lot get a lot more, but, but that is just another stressful component of this, of this journey. And, um, but we transferred to Carrier Shady Grove and we did a, I'm trying to remember if we did our third embryo transfer with Shady Grove, or if it was once we got up to, um, we moved up to Pennsylvania and it was actually not till we moved to Pennsylvania. And I think the thought there was, um, I think, you know, first of all, it takes a while. So, you know, everything I've just told you has taken, you know, I said it over a few seconds, but this is about two years of time, you know, of transfers and, um, and creating That's embryos. That's me the I, most. Gosh, like yeah. the sheer amount of time and effort, you know, yes. with a two physician family and all the moves and the transfers and the different hospitals and the appointments and the procedures and, you know, the, the distress, I, I just yeah. can't even, it's a staggering amount of time. It is, it is. And you know, one key thing I did not tell you, which is, I'll just tell you, cause it's, it also plays a role in what, how much time it took and how much primary procedures my, my, my wife went through was we did these saline sonograms. They look normal. Then we find it hysteroscopy and there was scar tissue, which we thought, okay, that's the reason why we're not getting, um, maybe why these, you know, we're having miscarriages. So she had a procedure to lyse this scar tissue. She had said she had some degree of Asherman syndrome. And mm -hmm. the first uh, lysis of, of these adhesions was done at Walter Reed before our second embryo transfer. And so that's another reason we're so hopeful. It's like, okay, we found the reason. We know why this didn't work, you know? And and um, and then it's, you know, it ended in miscarriage. And then she she went through in the end, three lysis of adhesion surgery. So, you know, in addition to all of the, um, uh, medications she took to create embryos and then the actual transfers to take more medications. She also had multiple procedures to, to lice adhesions, you know, and, and this was just us kind of, let's do everything we can to, to give ourselves a shot. But, um, after two failed transfers and, and, and these procedures to lice adhesions, and we'd moved to the, the Pennsylvania area at this point, um, we started looking into surrogacy because this was, you know, probably the logical next step for a couple that has, you know, got multiple miscarriages, had multiple embryo transfers not work out, is to look for a surrogate. And so there's a couple of different ways to look for a surrogate. And so the, at least in my mind or on our mind, the two main ways are you can look for a surrogate on your own. And that's usually Facebook. Um, uh, you know, there's a lot of these Facebook pages where you post, you know, about yourself and what you're looking for and some, um, and and uh, surrogates, uh, potential gestation colors or surrogates as they're called, will contact you. And the other way is to is to use a, a company that will that looks for surrogates, gestational carriers, and and matches them with um, what the, the the terminology is IP intended parents. Um, so couples who are trying to 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 enlist the aid of a surrogate. So uh, there's a bunch of these companies around. Um, we interviewed with a with a at least I think three or four of them after looking at you know reviews for a lot of them and we were down to two and we chose to work with one in Georgia and we just we just got a good feeling from talking to them and so when we and when we started working with them and and when when uh it was the it was the pandemic so you know when we we would move to Pennsylvania it was, it was the middle of the pandemic actually I think our last transfer was probably right before the pandemic and that was another reason sorry it's, I'm, all this coming back to me i think it was another reason we did another transfer is because we were in a pandemic and then and a lot of elective care was shut down right so you couldn't do another transfer even if you wanted to um because um uh, a lot of elective care was was um uh paused 
So um, we started looking for a surrogate during the pandemic. Surrogates are, it always takes a while to match with a surrogate in general. And the pandemic did make things much longer because again, uh, elective care is paused and surrogates have to go through medical workup to show that they are healthy, you know, uh, to, to be a surrogate. And so that workup is, is um, a little bit involved. And so it took us, I think, a year to match with our surrogate, which is a long time uh, in our minds, right? But probably not, not, probably not abnormal for, for people going through the surrogacy process, but in our minds, it was a long time. And I, I and again, another tangent, I think one of the biggest things I learned from this was, um, was to become more patient and just let things happen as they're going to happen. At first in this journey, I remember thinking about week to week, month to month, how old we would be, would we be when, you know, if, this, if things work out, okay, if this pregnancy, you know, if this transfer works out, we're going to be this number of years old and that's reasonable. I'll still be, you know, able to throw a ball with my, you know, uh, my, my son or my daughter and whatever. And, these things that you put in your mind of what you're, what you're looking forward to doing and, you know, how age may influence those things. But as things went on, you, I became less tied to that, that number of, okay, how old will I be? Cause I realized, Hey, this is really just going to happen on its own. You know, if it's, if it's going to happen. Right. And, and I, the possibility of it not happening also became more realistic to us. And, and, um, and I think that's important. I, I think that made it a little bit easier to go through the process. Cause when you're obsessing about, how old you're going to be or this or that it makes everything a little bit more stressful and so uh and if you just kind of let it happen if it's going to happen then it makes the journey a little bit easier right it's still a difficult journey in general but it makes it made it easier and so that that year waiting for a surrogate um uh again was a long time to us but probably not as long as it would have been early on in our in our in our journey and we matched with a wonderful surrogate um and the way matching works is they find someone who they think is, you know, appropriate uh, based on your what you're looking for. And what you're looking for is generally, um, you know, a certain age range. And it's really your IVF clinic, you know, your REI doctor saying, hey, this is what we want. We would like a woman who's, you know, been pregnant before between this age and this age and, you know, doesn't have these risk factors or, you know, this risk factor is acceptable, et cetera. So they pass it by your REI doctor first. And then if your REI doctor approves the surrogate overall, then they, um, then they put you two together. And there's, there's a couple of meetings and it, they involve a psychologist to make sure that everyone's on the same page. And this is really important because let's say your surrogate uh, gets pregnant with your embryo. And let's say, the embryo has a, um, a congenital defect. Are you guys on the same page about what you'd want an abortion for, for example, right? And so if you guys are not on the same page, that's a problem. If the surrogate not, does not believe in abortion, I'm just giving you know an example here. Uh, let's say you know a life-threatening congenital abnormality, right? Um, and you guys did, did want that or the reverse. You don't want it, but the surrogate wants it. You know, that, that's, that's an issue, right? And you want that relationship to, to be as set up for success as possible. So they they go through all these questions with you and there's there's a third person on the phone um, kind of helping mediate. And so we met with our surrogate and her husband. Um, it was a Zoom, I forget it was a Zoom or a phone call, um, but it went well. And then there was a second meeting and it went well. And then we were allowed to kind of just talk on our own without a chaperone <laughs> essentially. And, um, and so then we went, and then so then we started, you know, we started this process of, of working with a surrogate. And 
And the surrogate actually um, had two of her own children. And that's a general rule for a surrogate is they should have their own children because God forbid, God forbid something happens during the surrogacy, the pregnancy where, you know, they have to have an emergency C-section or something else happens and then they can't have children after that. That would be heartbreaking for everybody, right? You know, obviously heartbreaking for surrogate and obviously and heartbreaking for intended parents. You don't want that to happen to this, this wonderful woman, this wonderful family trying to help you. So she had her own two children and she'd actually been a surrogate one time before. And someone who's been a surrogate before, I mean, you know, um, that surrogate is worth their weight in gold in, in general terms because you know that they've gone through the process of taking these medications to prime their uterus to accept the transfer and it's worked, right? Which, you know, just because a woman's been pregnant before and it's gone well doesn't mean they're gonna, it's going to go well for a surrogacy. So a surrogate who's been pregnant before is just, you know, that's, that's, that's amazing. However, when we got lined up to do our transfer, her lining did not respond appropriately, which did not make any sense to anyone, um, you know, specifically the REI team, because this was the same protocol that she had used before. They they look they very much are they're very thorough. They look at the exact medications the surrogate took before, and I don't know how many versions of these cocktails there are of, of the medications, but but I think in general there's a set protocol, and you tweak it some. And she had had the, you know, the standard protocol before. And so she took the standard protocol now and her lining did not respond. And so, you know, we had flights booked to Georgia because so, so our surrogate was in Georgia. Uh, we were in Pennsylvania. We had flights booked to be there for the transfer. And it, they, it's really two days before they're like, oh no, the lining is not what we want to be. So, you know, another disappointment, but uh, also confusion. Like, why didn't this work? She's been a surrogate before. She's, this is work. Why would it not work now? It's, it's not, it hadn't been a gap of many, many years. It'd been a little bit of a gap but not, not a ton. And no one was sure. And so we kind of chalked it up to, okay, things happen. You know, part of this journey is just accepting it. And so let's, let's just, you know, wait for the medications to wear off and let's try this again. So we um, tried again. Um, I think it's probably two months later and the same thing happened. She did, she took the medications as she was supposed to, and the lining did not respond. And now it was like a, um, this was a, um, one of many, you know, disappointing po points, but I remember at this point being like thinking, oh my goodness, this surrogate, you know, one, we're back to square one, right? And we're back to square one where it takes a year to match with the surrogate. And that's what we were thinking we were going to have to do because, you know, I don't read it. It wasn't the surrogate's fault, right? She was, she was, um, uh, she's very intelligent and very cooperative and, you know, very compliant. She was taking, it's all, it was, we weren't concerned that she wasn't taking the meds correctly. It was, and so, if she's taking the meds correctly, then what else can she do, right? That's all she can do. And if I think most people, most a lot of surrogates would have said, hey, listen, this is not what I signed up for. You know, I signed up to help you have a baby. I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. I don't know why it's not working out. I'm really sorry, but I'm, you know, please find someone else. I don't know why it's not working out. Please find someone else. And I think a lot of surrogates, I, I don't know, but I'm guessing a lot of surrogates would have said at this point, hey, I'm good. We're, you know, this is not working out. We wish you all the best we're going to part ways. And to us, that would have meant um, we're back to looking for a new surrogate. But our surrogate, and and just more credit to her, and I, I really think she's she's an angel, uh, she was like, let's figure this out. And so we essentially did an infertility work on our surrogate. So, so you know, the good part is our surrogate. Story. Stuck, I know. The good part <laughs> is our surrogate stuck with us. The, the, the other part of it is, well, now, you know, what has already been, you know, a year of trying to find a surrogate, then multiple months of taking her medications and hoping for a transfer and not working out. It was like, oh, right, now we're, we're going to spend a few months trying to figure out why this isn't working, knowing it may, we may not figure it out, right? We may still be back to square one. 
So um, uh, we did this workup, including a bot. And, and I could go into details, but they can do a biopsy, not do a biopsy. We just kind of did the full workup. And I, I don't think that it was clear why, but we tried, we, it's just, we, tr we switched something, you know, and we switched this, we switched this one thing and we now went down for the third transfer and her lining was appropriate this time. Thank, you know, you know, thank the heavens. And, um, and so we get down for our transfer um, uh, in Georgia and this is, you know, now this, this is, this is 2022. And so just for perspective for, for people listening, we started trying in uh 2016 so we're six years down down the road and when i say we were trying i mean we took the first appointment we could get for everything you know you that's the point where we can get okay we'll do it oh we for you know uh, one of those surgeries for my wife to to try and get a license adhesions okay yeah we'll cancel our vacation we plan to do this surgery you know that that that's that's that was our mindset we and it wasn't that it, it over time we became we learned to become more patient but i think us being proactive or aggressive or however you want to word it, it just made us feel better. It made us feel like, okay, we're doing what we can do, you know, not know, not knowing that, Hey, a week or two is not gonna make a difference, but we felt like, okay, we're doing everything we can do. But here we are six years later, you know, multiple embryo transfers, um, our surrogate trying to, you know, have embryo transfers, um, and not working out by the way, while we're doing all this, my wife, we tried one more embryo transfer. My wife had yet another lysovid adhesion surgery because she had another hysteroscopy, the adhesions are back. And this new physician we worked with in Pennsylvania said, hey, I really think these adhesions are not terrible. I think we should do another lysis. I think you should try another transfer. And we're like, okay, you know, let's do it. And so we we did. And unfortunately that did not turn into a pregnancy. So we now had three, you know, embryo transfers that would not take in addition to our miscarriages before and our surrogate not being able to transfer a couple, not to be able to accept the transfer a couple of times. But here we were in um, the early part of this year and we flew down and they, we thought our best embryo. And again, this is a longer conversation, but you have embryos and they grade them based on how old you are when you create them and how, what they look like underneath the microscope. So they grade them. And, you know, we, we played our cards. Let's obviously, not obviously, but let's, let's transfer our best embryo. Right. And there's one embryo, which is clearly a, a cut above the rest. And, and, I told you earlier in this conversation that embryos thaw at a at an amazingly successful rate. Well, this one did not. So you know, <laughs> so it's like I think the numbers are you know again I could be wrong, but it's it's above ninety five percent. It's it's I think it's like ninety nine percent. You know, embryos you know thaw successfully, and we had three transfers. We'd already thawed embryos where we transferred into my wife, and all of those they thawed fine. And so this was our next you know our best embryo at the time, and it did not thaw. And so, uh, but they have a backup. Uh, you know, another backup of embryos and that one thawed and that one was implanted. And so, you know, you get this and you get this news all at once because you're not in the room for the transfer. You're kind of like in the waiting room, you know, um, hoping, um, crossing your fingers and toes. And, and I remember you, you saying that. Yeah, sorry to interrupt, but I remember you saying that you actually did not have to be there for the embryo transfer. I know no, that you no. chose to be there. I mean, that just yes. tells you and you went every single time. And I mean, that just tells you how much you know, you guys were invested, how much this meant. And I, I think that just, you know, after six years having all of this, I mean, it's just, it's just a, a staggering story, but, you know, go ahead. Sorry to, to interrupt. Yeah, just no, 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 no. Thank you. Um, uh, so the long story, not long story short, so it's a long story long. Um, 
uh, that so we, we the doctors came out, they said, hey, the first, you know, the embryo you we wanted to thaw did not thaw, but the, we thawed the other one and it and it transferred. And, you know, so in two weeks, you're going to find out, you know, I think it's a week or two. You, we're going to do the pregnancy test. They, they wait at least a week. Now you can do a home pregnancy test three or four days later. And, you know, a lot of people will do that, but we kind of wanted to just like, let's just get the number, you know, where the blood test, where they're telling us the ACG, you know, the actual number, cause that's more telling than just um, the, the home uh, urine test. And so, you know, I remember that week or two being one of the most anxious of our lives. And again, you know, we had a lot of anxious weeks already at this point, we have a lot of anxious weeks, but you know, we were, and I think it was the most anxious because at this point we we're running out of options, right? A, a lot of our hope and our journey was based off of, um, there's a next step. If this doesn't work out, we have a next step. But if, a, if you know, transferring an embryo into a surrogate doesn't work out, you're really, you're kind of running out of um, steps there. You could transfer again, right? It's not the guarantee like, oh, if the embryo doesn't take the first time, it's never going to take. Of course not. It, there, there's, there's definitely examples of the embryo not taking the first time and, and then taking this, you know, taking the second time or a third time. But, but, um, but that was one of those anxious weeks we had and, um, and we got the call and, and, the, and our surrogate was pregnant and we were just so thankful. And of course, this does not mean it's going to, you know, doesn't mean she can't miscarry or, you know, something else, but, but my goodness, that was a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful day. Um, we were so happy. And, you know, I told you there were some low days, but there were some high days as well. And this was one of them. And the other high days were, you know, meeting our, our surrogate in person and her husband. And they are just such, they were, they were, are such great people. You know, they're, they just really wanted to help, um, you know, our surrogate. Uh, and this was really our husband telling us this more than our surrogate telling us. It's something she's always wanted to do. Something she's wanted to do since she was young uh, was to help another, another couple have children. And so she'd been a surrogate once before, which I had mentioned and now she's doing it for us. And, and, you know, um, I told you that the medications or regimens to take the, leading up to a transfer are not easy. She done it three times now, right. You know, uh, cause of the, the, the transfers was not work out before. And now a third time those, it it's a lot of medications, you know, it, it's, it's a lot of hormones. It's, a, it's not an, it's, it's those medications are usually taken. Um, it's a deep, uh, uh, needle for a lot of it. And so it's painful and, and she did it all. And, um, but she got pregnant and, and we now have a healthy baby daughter, which is, you know, fast forwarding to where we are now very recently. And, um, uh, you know, in between, you know, she got pregnant, we went, we flew down for every point we could fly down for. So, uh, you know, the first point we flew down for was just like a, uh, an ultrasound, right. Just like listening to the heartbeat. And, um, and then obviously we, we flew down, not obviously, but we flew down for anatomy scan. And that was another wonderful, wonderful day. Um, and then we flew down for a few more. I mean, we, my wife and I became, we could, we could travel from our town to the airport, which is like is an hour away to Atlanta, to the clinic, kind of in our sleep, I think at this point, because, you know, we've done the journey so many times where we fly down in the morning and fly back in the evening. So we were only taking a day off from work, you know, because um, we wanted to be there for the appointments. We also, you know, have obviously clinical responsibilities. Um, and yeah. how did that go? I know that that, you know, is something we haven't really talked about in is, you know, how accepting were your employers um, of this? Because, you know, clearly this is taking a lot of time and obviously it's the least important part of the story, but it is reality for a lot of people, both, you know, the time, the expense, the, you know, uh, yeah. Talking work. Yeah. Can, uh, so I'm going to answer your question and I'm going to work backwards, which is 
Um, our employers were, were fairly accepting. So we both work for large hospital um, groups, different groups. Um, but, you know, part of it is at this point, it did not matter to us. You know, if my employer said, hey, this is a problem, I would have said, okay, good luck buying a new urologist. You know, like this is my priority at this point. And um, so, and I, and I think that came across very clearly when I had conversations with my, with my you know, my, my managers, uh, like this is happening. I will tell you when I need to be gone, I'm going to do everything in my power to, to limit it. Meaning I'll wake up at three in the morning, catch a 5 a.m. flight and fly back the same day so I can be back in, you know, clinic or, or whatever, um, you know, the next morning. But, um, but this is a priority to me. And so, but that being said, no, I, I honestly, I think both of our, our teams were pretty understanding, you know, and, and, and this goes to another, a couple of different points. One, um, it's a very isolating experience when you're going through this because you feel like you're the only one going through it, which is not true. This is, this is common for a lot of physician couples or sorry, just physicians and, and couples in general um, as they get older. And this goes to the, your conversation with Dr. Sweldo, where there's that, you know, 35 is not a magic year, but once you pass that 35 year inflection point, it becomes much more difficult. So there's a lot of couples dealing with what we're dealing with. And we, we learned about a lot of friends and friends of friends um, going through this. Um, uh, and it, going working backwards, I think, you know, one of the the things, the reasons we delayed was not only we're long distance, but back in residency, we felt like a, you know, a pressure to not to to not disrupt the system, right? To not disrupt the system we're in for, you know, and some of that for good reasons, right? If you leave, it, it, whether it's for pregnancy or something else, it puts more pressure on your co-residents. And a lot of residences are not uh, designed where they can it can handle that 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 extra workload of a resident being gone for a while. Well, and um, and hopefully that will change over time because I think. Uh, it's going to be one of two things either it needs to change or you're going to have couples like in our position which is not which is not ideal and i think uh, you know a lot of couples would may decide not to go into medicine or you know people may decide not to go into medicine for this especially as this fertility and infertility become more uh uh talked about which i think is already happening right you know and maybe i'm biased because i'm looking for this in in <laughs> in the media you know over the last six seven years but um but i think it it is more discussed than it used it's to be yeah, this is why your story is so important because, you know, just recognizing, and I think that you hit the nail on the head when it becomes the the pressure in residency, because with the job, you know, you could leave your job, but as a resident, you know, you're putting the burden on someone else that you're looking at every day. And, you know, you don't know that this is going to be a six year plus road. You know, you don't know all the troubles that are ahead of you. You just know that the trouble is that's right in front of you. And yeah. so I, I think not just the person who is undergoing the fertility journey or infertility journey, um, however it ends up, because we don't know. Um, right. It's the people on the other side too, of, you know, accepting that, you know, this is a challenge and, you know, there is a limited time that we can do this. And it's important for us to really honor the ability to have children and to support that. Um, and, you know, getting out of our own way to do it ourselves and realizing that, you know, if we burden the system, it's a system that's a problem, not us. And yeah. I think that's the most important thing, but it's so hard when, you know, you're dealing with a person who's in front of you. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I, I think, I think everything you said was perfect. I think, honestly, I think everything you said was perfect. And, um, and I hope, and I think you, you know, you've talked about this in your podcast before, but I, but I hope, you know, the system changes slowly, but surely to, to, to realize this is matters. This is important. This is what's right to do. What's right to do is trying to find a way 
to build in safeguards or buffers. So things like this can, you know, can happen. Residents can, can, can be good residents, but also start a family, right? And residents can be good re residents and also deal with whatever other thing is going on in their life. They're not, they don't, they should not be mutually exclusive. Just because they have been, doesn't mean it should be that way forevermore. And, um, and I, I, I really hope that, and I, and I, and I have, and I believe in to some extent that that's going to happen with time because uh, people are going to talk about this more. And so program directors and programs as a whole will think about it more and, and they'll hopefully find ways to, to make it happen more where, where it's reasonable to think about it. I mean, not, you know, a quick example, Dr. Swaldo, in your talk, talked about freezing eggs, right. For female residents or not, you know, or medical students, it is, you know, and I think that's a wonder, I mean, not a wonderful idea. I think that's a, something to really be considered. Now I'm a guy, so, you know, easy for me to say, but, but, um, but, uh, you know, yeah, I, I, if I, if, if I know a female um, who's going into career medicine, I would have that conversation with them. You know, I, I would, you know, uh, I hope it wouldn't be inappropriate to say like, hey, you know, think about this at least, you know, listen to this podcast, think about it, you know, that kind of thing. I completely agree. And I, I think especially um, for the program directors and people, you know, dealing with residents too, is, you know, we're not allowed with good reason to talk about these things, you know, to avoid any, you know, risk of discrimination. But I think, you know, being proactive and sharing these stories and the struggles that, that people could have. And, you know, again, recognizing that, you know, the system is what needs to change, not not the people necessarily within it, that we have to accept that this is something that's really important. And the system really needs to support this if they're going to be supportive of the people within the system. Right. Right. And, you know, and, and for whatever it's worth, I think uh, people who go into medicine in, in a lot of ways lend themselves towards having this issue, not because because the the path of medicine is long with medical school and residency etc of course that's part of it but also because people who go into medicine are people who want to be take care of others and want to be team players right they, they they don't want to put stress or burden on other people and so you know get, if getting pregnant means it's a stress and a burden on your program or um you know more more or probably more to the heart your co-residents right who um then you there's some subconscious pressure to avoid that and I think a lot of physicians uh, probably feel that and, and, and consciously or subconsciously act on it. And they think, oh, no, I'll, I'll do this when it makes more sense for us. And I'm not going to be, you know, I, I don't want my two co-residents to be working, taking extra weekend calls because, you know, I'm going to be off on, you know, maternity leave or paternity leave or, 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 or whatever it may be. Right. And so, um, and I think those are kind of doctors we want. We want doctors who are thinking about their partners, who want to be teammates, who want to help patients. So we should help them, right? We should help them find a way to start to start a family. Completely agree. Now, I know that this was like a, an incredibly uh, painful journey. Now, what were some of the things that carried you through along the way? Yeah, I really, yeah, thank you for asking that because um, it, it changed over time. And I, and I think that's, one of the main things I, I hope people listening to, you know, maybe take out of it is, is here's what worked for me. And it may, obviously may not work for, for someone else, but just some thoughts. Um, because, you know, we honestly had very supportive uh, parents, you know, family and, and friends. We really did. And that being said, it, their support did not help a ton. You know, and I mean that in like the nicest way possible because they don't understand. And, you know, you hear a lot of like the... Um, oh, just, you know, stop stressing. And when you stop stressing, it's going to work out, right? Which is like, you know, please, if, if you know someone who's trying to get pregnant, don't say that to them. Just, just, you know, it's like, it's just, 
it's you know on one level you know to say it and the other level it's just a, it just comes out right so i understand like it seems like the right thing to say but um so what does what did help well i think there were a couple of things one i think learning of other friends or friends of friends who've gone through this and talking to them and um and hearing their journeys and you would think on one hand it would be frustrating to hear oh this person had difficulties and they got pregnant while you're still struggling not getting pregnant but honestly that gave us hope or at least gave me hope when I would hear, Hey, they went through this and they got pregnant and maybe they got pregnant after a year and we're into three years into this, but still this person struck, you know, these people went through this journey and they felt what we're feeling probably. And, and there was a light end of the tunnel for them. So there's a reason to hope and believe that there's a light at the end of the tunnel for us. So talking to friends who went through this and honestly, a lot more of us talking to friends of friends who, who went through this or just hearing about them, I think was really helpful. In the same vein, um, you know, this is, a, I think, a one reason, one way social media shines, which is there are, sorry, hold on one second. Uh, let me try back up. So, um, so, so I think in one way, this is how social media shined in my mind, which is we found, or I found, uh, it's really helpful to be on some of these online groups that talk about infertility. And, you know, there's Facebook groups that, that there's a ton of Facebook groups and there, I actually found, I think one of my, you know, uh, something I found really helpful was, was like what's called a subgroup on Reddit or a feed on Reddit. Reddit, for those who don't know, is this huge website where there's all these different, uh, I'm not going to explain it well, cause I don't, I'm not, I don't spend enough time on it to explain it well, but, but there is a group, um, or a, a feed on Reddit called trolling for a baby. TFAB is the acronym. And, you know, if you are struggling with, for, with infertility and you want to be angry and laugh with other people going through the same thing, I recommend this, you know, this, this Reddit feed, because it's, it's just a lot of posts and memes that you just laugh at because you relate to them. And it, and it feels, it's like one of those things where it's safe to laugh and to be angry, you know, together. And, you know, it's kind of like, you know, we in medicine, right? Like we, we joke about patients or whatever it is. Um, I was and, just thinking medical professionals understand dark humor like nobody else. Right, right, right. So this is dark humor. And this is, you know, and so it's already something we're comfortable with as, as you know, I was so super comfortable with as being in medicine. And I just found it cathartic, you know, and, it, and, um, and so I thought that was one way social media was, was helpful was just, you know, okay, there's other people out there going through this, like, oh, that feeling you're talking about? Yeah, I felt that literally five minutes ago, or I felt that a week ago, or, you know, when you feel it two weeks from now, you're like, oh, yeah, I, I remember seeing something, someone else talking about this, or not just someone else, many people talking about this. And I thought that was helpful. Yeah. And I think, you know, isolation is one thing that that can be so damaging, you know, that triggers shame and, and guilt and all the things um, and reaching out and finding people that are going through the same thing and hearing the stories. So you don't feel alone is probably the most helpful thing, because I can only imagine, you know, how isolating and how frustrating that all of this felt. Um, I mean, you, you tell it so eloquently and so easily, but, you know, I know that you're really just summarizing, you know, what, what lies underneath. Um, and I can only imagine all the, the, the tragedy and the, the deep feelings that all of this, you know, must generate. And so 
I mean, for you to to come on and share your story, I think is so important. Um, and it's important for all of us to to share this, whether we had this or not. And you know, my husband and I, we delayed 10 years because um, I didn't think I'd want kids because, you know, I wanted to be a surgeon and sure. I didn't think that I could. And then I one day just decided that was the case, but I did not have as hard of a path as I could have. And so, you know, recognizing just how hard it can be for some people and sharing that and supporting them is, is something that we can all do. Yeah, I thank you. Yeah, well said, Amy. Um, I, 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 the, I think the reason I posted on Facebook and we're having this conversation is what you just said. I want people to know that this journey is hard. It happens to a lot of people. There's a lot of low points. And I think it's it's totally okay, normal, good to not, you know, good is subjective term, but but to be bitter and sad and angry and 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 upset and, and all these other emotions, which are um, not great, but but are but make sense when you're going through this journey. And hopefully those are not permanent emotions. Hopefully those are, you know, temporary um, emotions and and uh, but it, it's a journey and it takes a long time. It took us a long time to become more OK with the This will happen when it's going to happen. Right. And um, and by no means was I a Zen master at the end of it. I was just better than I was at the beginning of it. Um, but the lessons I learned were uh, it's a journey. It's going to happen if it's going to happen, it's going to happen when it, when it happens. Um, you know, get support from where you can get support, whether that be friends of friends or online. I think the other thing which I found productive was I told friends how I was feeling, you know? And so even though they don't understand, I, I would say, you know, like, let's just make a friend's name up just so I'm not like saying what my friend's name's on. Like, let's, you know, let's, let's call them um, Jonathan, just for the sake. Like, I would say, John, I'm, I am like, how are you feeling? I'm upset, man. You know, we've been going through this. It's not working out. I'm bitter. I'm upset. You know, this is how I feel. And I think that was good for two reasons. One, you're probably not yourself when you're talking to your friends, or at least the way your friends remember you from, you know, a year ago, or for our case, like five years ago, or whatever. Like, oh, why is the day always a little bit more bitter when I talk to him? Like, why, why doesn't he return his like calls as often or whatever? I think telling them this stuff helps them understand, oh, he's going through something, right? And, and then two, it made me feel less guilty when I wasn't all about like, oh yeah, I want to go do that thing or, oh yeah, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit different than the way I was before. I, I think, okay, they understand, or they probably understand, or they know something at least. So I think I found personally telling good friends, I'm not saying random people, but like good friends, uh, I found it hit helpful. And I think it was probably helpful for my friends as well. Um, uh, and, and family, I think, you know, yeah, such say, an hey, important my low points. Yeah, totally. And I think it's such an important point, too, because we never know what someone else is going through. And, you know, we all have the tendency to mind read what someone's doing. It's usually a reflection of what we're thinking about ourselves. Sure. And so with you being you know, proactive and saying like, hey, it's not you, it's really me. And this is what I'm going through is is the best thing that you could do to get that support that you want um, is that people just don't know that you need support until you tell them. Yeah. And, and, you know, and, and friends and family are wonderful, right? Because they want to help you. They want good things for you, but if they don't know what you're going through, it's hard for them to, um, to help you to, you know, in whatever way they can. And, and, you know, fast forwarding again to uh, us having our daughter. I mean, uh, so many of our friends were so, I mean, all of our friends are happy, but so many of our friends are so happy for us. You could see the genuine joy. I mean, friends cried when, when we told them that we were getting pregnant and I, and then, and I'm sure that would happen for another friend of theirs. I was, you know, um, getting pregnant. They, they would be happy for them. But part of me thinks I think they were extra happy for us because they knew what we were going through and they knew what we were going through because I told them to some extent, this is what we're going through. 
and and you know um so that was wonderful it was obviously wonderful when we when when our surrogate got pregnant and it was it was also really wonderful when we told close friends and family and you could see and feel the true joy and relief and happiness that they had for us um and and that's because they we talked to them to you know some extent throughout throughout the process um the other things i think i found helpful uh were um one when we were you know we our friends were having children and we you know we were struggling we're like okay what else can we what can we do that now that you know we would not be able to do when we have children so we we got um we traveled a lot whether it be day trips or weekend trips i should say somewhere locally or going somewhere where we would not be able to go otherwise so you know we went with both of our parents to iceland we went to um uh, a safari in Africa. We went to, um, you know, just places, right? We just traveled. And so we, and the, my, and the thought there was, okay, you know, if we had a child, we would not be able to do this trip. So let's do this trip now. And, and, and let's, let's, you, you have cards in your hand. Let's try to play the cards in your hand, right? Which is the card we want in our hand is to have a baby, but we don't have that card. So until we get that card, what else can we do? And I would play sports, you know, in the evenings. I would, you know, I joined intramural leagues. I played soccer and basketball, and, and hopefully I'll still do that now. But realistically, that may not be as as possible, right? Because um, just time constraints. So I tried to do things that I would not be able to do um, uh, if we had the baby at, at that time. And then the last thing, I, or not the last thing, or another thing that I think really helped us was we uh, had a dog. Now we did not get this dog because we knew we were going to struggle, but we, we got, you know, we, we got our dog, um, a year before, uh, we started trying and, um, and that, you know, a lot of that dog, our dog is a great dog. I mean, whose dog is not a great dog, but, um, but, uh, but it was a place for us to focus our love and energy. And it's, you know, a, we all know having a pet is therapeutic and it really was extra for us, right? Like when we were like sad, there was this happy animal who was, you know, love to see us and when we and you know what you know what really helps when you're sad and you're not feeling great to take a long walk and you know what forces you to take a long walk whether <laughs> you know it's raining or snowing or you know sunshine is having a dog who loves to be in the woods and so we hiked a lot we because of our because of our dog and um and not only just for us i think our parents you know this 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 was uh this this process was uh, hard for our parents. And I think they transferred some, you know, love onto their, their dog grandchild as well. And, um, so I think I'm not saying, Hey, if you're struggling with fertility, get a dog, but I am kind of saying, Hey, if you're struggling with infertility, think about getting it, think about getting a pet. You know, I just, I think it's, um, that's one lucky dog. <laughs> Sorry. That's one lucky yeah. dog. It's one that's lucky, one you know, lucky. And, and yeah, the only issue now is it's, it's one dog who's so used to getting poured with attention and now there's a baby, you know, <laughs> thankfully, finally, and this poor dog, is like, why am I not getting the same level of attention that I used to get? But, but you know, that, that'll work itself out. So still getting I can only time. imagine, and this is almost, you know, bordering on a foolish question, but how is your life now? Oh yeah. I mean, of course. Right. So uh, it, we're, we're speaking on, on just after Christmas. And so, you know, our best Christmas, my best Christmas ever. Right. I mean, you know, um, uh, life is, um, is, 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 is wonderful um and the reason it's wonderful is not only do we have a daughter who you know um who's not just a not not a yet a month old but but almost there and and seems to be doing well and um uh the grand we moved back to pennsylvania because bob knows my, my wife's parents live very close to us 
and so they're over all the time and getting to see their 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 grandchild and my parents um don't live too far away and they you know they come over every weekend or or sometimes during the week and, and they get to see their grandchild and so it just warms my heart so much to be able to see um not only not only for us to have to enjoy our our child but also our our parents you know one of my i was saying earlier you think about oh i'll be this old or you think about certain things that you're thinking about when you're um hoping for this baby and one of the things that i wanted in my heart more than anything else was to see my father hold my um hold my baby and i say my father only because my father has some certain health issues so knowing this process taking a while you know it was not unrealistic, unfortunately, to think, hey, he may not be there for everything, you know, that we want, I want him to be there for. And so, you know, it's just, I thought, oh, I really want this to happen. So that first time my father held my, held my daughter, you know, his, his granddaughter was just a, it was like a fairy tale coming true kind of moment. Um, and and it, it was, it was wonderful. And it's wonderful every time he holds her, not just the first time, but, but, but especially that first time. Well, what an amazing story. And I mean, your story has helped so many people um, who are following along the path of this. You know, you're going to hit someone and every step that you've already been through. So I can't tell you how much I appreciate you sharing your story. It's just it's really going to be so helpful to um, all the people that are going through this. I really hope so. Thanks. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me. And um, and, you know, um, uh, if anyone anyone listening wants to talk you know, to me personally, I'm honestly really happy to talk to them. You know, I I, I really am. And so um, in whatever way that makes sense to pass on my contact information, um, uh, that that is why I put that, place on, that, that post on Facebook was to, was to ask people, to tell people, hey, this happened, this happens. This happened to us, it happens to others. It may happen, if it happens to you or someone you know, um, uh, you know, I feel for you and, 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 and please reach out if you think I can help and I can help, we can help in some way. Yes. And, you know, to preserve your, your personal information, just reach out to me. I will forward it to you. Perfect. Perfect. Thank you, Amy. Thank you. All right, Abe, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. For more information on the Boss Business of Surgery series, go to bosssurgery.com.